I can turn on my mic. There it is. I got a prayer request before we open up. The um, I got a message from Sarah, my sister-in-law, that uh, our missionaries in uh, Myanmar, uh, Justin Smith, the Lazarinis that are in Lashia, along with some other families that have come uh, over the last year, there is a militia group that has come into Lashio as of Friday morning. And uh, they had to leave suddenly uh, Friday morning. And uh, it's a really dangerous situation. I mean, you could, when you get home this afternoon, you could Google uh, Northern Myanmar and the rebel groups. And so we need to be praying for them. And uh, that was a really shocking and uh, unsettling uh, situation for not just our missionary families, but for everybody in that region. And so as we get started this morning, as I pray for God to work as, as uh, we look at his word, let's pray for uh, our missionary families. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the fact that you are omnipresent and you're, Lord, you're all powerful. You're all knowing. I pray for all of these uh, families in this region of Myanmar that are uh, in danger and I pray for Justin, I pray for his family, I pray for his kids and his wife, and I pray for the Lazarinis and these other families. I pray you just guide their steps. And I pray you protect them. I pray you give them wisdom. I pray you'd open up doors for the gospel. Lord, we give this to you. We're reminded of the, of the difficulty in the world. And, and Lord, we're reminded that the only way we can have peace is through Jesus. And Father, I pray that it would bring about a desire and a longing for your coming. And I pray that uh, you would work in the way that only you can. I pray as we look at your word that you would open our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This morning our text is in verse 11 down through verse 15. Titus 2, verse 11 through 15. Why don't we read that passage as we get started here? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We're, we're going to look at this passage and try to see it in its context, but I want you to notice just a couple of of, of, of quick things. We, we see this revelation of the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation to all men. But then we get into the language of grace as our teacher and instructor. And we see this idea of a teacher and we see this idea of pupils, of students in the classroom. And this morning I've entitled the message, The Classroom, of grace, the classroom of grace. And what we're going to try to do as we look at this text is we're going to try to find and look and notice three observations about 
this classroom. Three observations about this classroom. When we look at the opening here in verse 11, it's a word that um, for the grace of God has appeared. It's a word of summary of what he's just been saying. Let's look back and quickly note what we have been learning. In Titus chapter 2, in all of the book of Titus, we've been seeing God's design for the local church. We've been seeing the way that God has called leaders to guide his church. And when we move into chapter 2, we see the instructions that he gives to every segment within any local church, and particularly the instructions that he gives for Titus as he appoints leaders there at Crete. We see older men and how are older men to live. We see that description there in Titus chapter 2 and verse 2. We see older women, and we see how older women are to act. We see it move into younger women. In verse 5, we see again younger men mentioned there as he continues on in chapter 2. We see instructions to Titus. We see instructions to bond slaves. We see all of these instructions of how these people ought to live and how they ought to act. I was reading... um, some comments about this passage, and this helped me out in thinking about framing what is taking place here. One commentator said, someone has said that the word for suggests that here is the theological foundation for what the apostle had just written. I think Paul is explaining, this commentator says, how it is possible for saved sinners to adorn the doctrine of God rather than dishonor it. You see, the temptation is to look at the Bible as a moral book only, as a, as a guidebook for how you ought to live, as a way to boost moralism. But what we find is, if you're familiar with your own struggles, and you're familiar with the struggles of the people of Crete, verse 12 of chapter 1, we can relate to this as human beings One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How in the world do people known for those characteristics turn into the people of chapter 2? What is the explanation? How does this take place? And so 11 through 15 act in a way of, let me explain how this has taken place. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled upright in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the basis for how we are to live. I love what William Barclay says about this text. He says, there are few passages in the New Testament which so vividly set out the moral power to carry out the ethical demands as this does. Its whole stress is the miracle of moral change which Jesus Christ can work. So with that in mind, let's jump in. What is the first observation here? You could come up with different ones, but the way that I look at this passage, the first one, first observation about this classroom, we are brought into this classroom by grace. I want you to think about the classroom settings you've been in in your life. I, 
I, I can't remember all my teachers, but I remember Miss Alderman in second grade. She was always scary to me. I don't know why. Nice lady, but I was scared to death of her. Third grade, Miss Cooper. Fourth grade, Miss Kane. Fifth grade, Miss Lackey. Sixth grade, Miss Menace. I mean, can you, can you relate? I know many of you can because I've heard you talk about your old teachers before, before previous teachers. And I had Mr. Fortenberry. I mean, and then you get in a junior high and you have more. And, and I had so many that influenced me. But have you ever, you know, you look back and you think about those classrooms. I had a, uh, I had a lot of basketball coaches, but I had one that was very unique, it, Coach Steve Carpenter. And uh, his, his practice sessions were a classroom. We had to have notebooks. Have you ever heard of such a thing? We had to take notes in practice. And he would sometimes say he was going to take up our notebooks to check them. And that was a classroom setting. And every one of those classrooms had a different environment, had different instructors, had a different feel to it. But here, Paul is framing this section to explain that what has made such a radical change that the people of God now can live this way. And he speaks about a classroom of grace, a classroom of grace that we've been brought in by grace. This is fun because notice how it reads and you can look at it. And if you read it again and take some time just to go through it slow, for the grace of God has appeared. We, we've talked a lot about grace. And, you know, grace is, is, is a wonderful definition is God's unmerited favor, but a definition that allows it to even be more broader is, is, is what William Barclay was talking about. It's not only unmerited favor, but it's God's transforming power to take an individual and to change them and to work in them and to fill them. And, but here we see that Jesus is the grace of God. I, I told you that years ago when I was in seminary, um, one individual that really impacted me in studying the pastoral epistles was a guy by the name of John Stott. And, 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 and John Stott here said, of course, grace did not come into existence when Christ came. God has always been gracious. Indeed, the God of all grace but grace appeared visibly in Jesus Christ. God's saving grace given us before the beginning of time has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. And when we look at God's grace, isn't that what we learn about Jesus? When we get into the Gospels, my favorite passage that describes the grace of Jesus I want you to listen to the words of John chapter 1, verse 14. And, and here, we're going to look at this word appearing. I don't want to jump the gun, the gun here, but the grace of God has appeared to all men. You remember in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, what does he say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then verse 16, For from 
his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God. Think of the goodwill of God exercised towards man, visibly personified in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared to all men bringing salvation. You you realize that the entire message of the Bible is a message of grace, a message that even from the very beginning in Genesis chapter three, that Eve would have a son, that one day he would save the world. That, that he would be the perfect lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And notice how Paul states it here. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The word appeared is a wonderful word. It's used in the New Testament four times to describe the first coming of Jesus Christ. And it's used six times to describe the return of Jesus Christ and the second coming. And what's phenomenal here is that he uses it in both ways in this passage. It's the word that we might use for, have you ever heard the word epiphany? It's the word epiphany. It's the word in the Greek that means that you're in complete darkness when you get up really early and all of a sudden the sun rises and there's that moment where it comes. Again, I want to read to you from Stott. It says, now the noun means the visible appearance of something or someone invisible, a coming into view of what has been previously concealed. It was used in classical Greek of the dawn or daybreak when the sun leaps over the horizon into view of an enemy emerging out of ambush. That's the idea of what Jesus Christ has done in coming on the scene. You know, when we look at the Old Testament and we come to the end of the storyline of the history and we get to Malachi and in the book of Malachi, it ends and there's this period of silence. And if you look at the timeline of Malachi, you see that before we get to the gospels, there's about 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period. It's also called the time of silence because there's no record there of any revelation of God that is given through his word. And what do we find? That in that silence, God is working behind the scenes and he is about to bring the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. When you look at passages that remind you of that truth, think about Galatians chapter 4. The grace of God has appeared to all men. Remember, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, in Galatians 4, verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You remember Hebrews, and when we were going through Hebrews in verse 1 of the opening chapter, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We're brought in 
the classroom by God's grace. I was looking about a week ago and when I was talking to Izzy about baptism and talking about salvation and we were looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin, he was sinless, to become sin for us. He's our substitute. Our sin was so great that it took the Lord Jesus Christ to appear to bring about redemption for our sin by grace through faith. I was talking to a dear man the other day, a situation that involved a benevolence need. And, and, I, and I called him up and we were talking and, and, I, and I, said, I said, what gives you confidence that you'll be in heaven one day? And he said, well, he, he started out really well. He said, I, I believe in what God has said in his word. And I believe in Jesus. And I was thinking, this is, this is solid. This is good. And then it went off trail. He said, and I, I really believe that I, uh, we have a little bit to do with this. And I try to be the best person I can be. And I, and, I, and I said, I said, man, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you can bring salvation through what you do, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Why was it necessary? Why was it important? But Paul here is speaking of the fact, he, he's laying the foundation as to how they can understand how new life in Christ is possible. He's saying the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God and the wisdom of the Godhead appeared at the exact moment in time, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law. And he, he came on the scene and he did for us what we could never do. And he provided a way. And now Paul's audience were those who by grace through faith had experienced salvation that is in Christ. So the first observation that we see about this classroom is that we were brought in it by grace. We were brought in it by grace. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then we read in verse 12, Training us. What does he mean for all people? I really believe what he's speaking of here. He's just gotten through giving us every category. And if you think about it, whether you are an older man, a younger man, whether you are an older woman, a younger woman, whether you're a bond slave, regardless of class, regardless of place in society, the grace of God has appeared. So we see number one, brought in by grace is the first observation of this classroom. We're brought in by the grace of God. But number two, we are instructed by grace. We're instructed. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us. What does that word train mean? Well, it, it's the idea of child training. It's used of the moral and spiritual nurture and training of the child. I, um, Charles Spurgeon 
has so many wonderful things to say, and I, I think he does a really good job of explaining this word. He says it's a scholastic term, has to do with the education of children, not merely the teaching, but the training and bringing of them up. The grace of God has become to us a schoolmaster to teach us, to train us, to prepare us for a more developed state. Christ has manifested in his own person that wonderful grace of God, which is to deal with us as with sons and to educate us into holiness and so to the full possession of our heavenly heritage. We are the many sons who are to be brought to glory by the discipline of grace. We could say a prayer and go home. That's an amazing verse, amazing statement by Spurgeon there of the wonderful grace of God in saving us and in training us. It's used in Acts chapter seven, that word for training of instruction. It's used in Acts 22 verse three of the word educated. It's used in Hebrews with the word disciplines. So think about it. It's not just instruction, but it's discipline, not just education, so many different things. The he is our teacher. Now, now think about this. Grace is our teacher. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ personifies grace. He is our teacher. Now think about the fact that salvation is not just a moral code in which you live a different way or try to act according to a different set of rules. Salvation is conversion by the power of the Holy Spirit, baptized into the body of Christ, made a new creation, living with a whole different way. I love this because I really believe that if you don't understand how this passage relates to what Paul says in Galatians, I think you'll never understand it. In Galatians chapter 2, listen to this, and I want you to reflect on how these passages are similar. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now think about it. Christ now lives in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ now resides in us. And what has he done according to James chapter 1? He's implanted his word in us. And now, what has he done according to Romans 8? The Holy Spirit now indwells in us. And how does he minister to us? Now, because Christ lives in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ is instructing us and is growing us in the classroom of grace. And what a teacher Jesus is. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Did you catch what Dylan read earlier? He's speaking about the Gentiles, and he says, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But then what does he say? But that is not the way you learn Christ. 
Now notice the wording here as it relates to Titus 2 and the instruction that grace brings. Paul says in Ephesians 4.21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He teaches us through the power of the Spirit, through the power of the Word of God. He teaches us through discipline as Hebrews 11 teaches us. He teaches us unlike any other teacher. He lives within us. He works in us. And, and I want you to think about in the context, how is he teaching us? Go back to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. What is the call of the preacher? But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, how does that relate? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. As the people of God are taught the word of God, Jesus Christ is instructing his people through the power of his spirit, growing them up in sanctification in the ways of God. It all connects. I remember that I, I, I went to a Christian school in Chattanooga and I, I had the, I, I transferred my, my junior and senior year to an all boys school. I went, I went to a Macaulay school in Chattanooga, my junior and senior year. And it was a lot harder than what I was used to. And, uh, I remember when I graduated, I, I went to a small college called Bruton Parker College to play basketball, and it didn't have any admission requirements. And, uh, and I remember being at Macaulay, I was like, Dad, look at the graduation list. There's a lot of Ivy League schools. There's all these like, I mean, they're big time schools. And Dad looked at me and goes, at least your school's got a hyphen in it. They'll think it's really hard. <laughs> Said Bruton-Parker. So what they didn't know didn't hurt them, but it was a hard school. And uh, I had a tutor. I remember, uh, it's pretty funny. I'm going off on too many stories, but I was at a cross-country meet last year, and uh, Macaulay was running in it. And I saw it. I went by the Macaulay tent. I was like, this is going to be interesting. And there was a Spanish teacher that was really hard, and uh, we had to call him Senior McCall. And I saw him at the tent for the cross-country meet. And I went in there and I said, uh, Senor McCall. <laughs> and he looked at me like, who is this strange man before me? And he looked at me and goes, uh, do I know you? And I said, Esteban Barbero. <laughs> and he still didn't remember me. But he looked at me like, this is the oddest thing that's happened all day. And, uh, but he said, I remember one day I was a senior and he said, look, you're not going to be eligible if you don't get on the ball. He goes, you will not graduate from this school. And immediately I went home and I was panicking and I got, I got a tutor. I got a tutor. I had a tutor that I met with twice a week, my senior year. And she would come to the library. She'd work with me, but then she'd leave. And that was that, you know, I had 45 minutes and I had to go through my Spanish homework and, and we would talk, but, but that was the extent of her tutorship, if that's a word, right? That was the extent of it. But I want you to think about something here. Here he's defining and describing the classroom of grace. And he's saying, let me explain the grace of God personified in Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you who your instructor is. And let me explain to you the miracle of the grace of God working in your growth. He lives within us. These people had experienced the life-changing power of Christ. 
And now he tells them, I want, it's hard for us to grasp. I mean, they lived in a pagan world. They lived in a pagan world just like we live in a pagan world. But sometimes we lose sight of that because we have been blessed with people before us that have been Christians for long periods of time within this part of the country. But, but here he's saying, look, the grace of God has appeared. He's brought you salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness. The ministry of your teacher working in you, training you. There's three different ways we see this take place. We see, first of all, this instruction. How does it work? We see what we are to say no to. We see what we are to say yes to. And finally, we see what we are to look to. And this instruction here, what is he teaching us? Well, we see it according to chapter 2. He's teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. This is amazing because it's not just instruction, it's enablement. It's the power to do what God commands through the living Christ who is our instructor, who lives inside of us, who has brought his word to us. He gives us ungodliness and worldly lust to deny. And, and I pray we, that all of us would see the grace of Jesus is the only way ungodliness and worldly lust can be dealt with. And he, he says, say a no to ungodliness. It, it means the idea of ungodliness is joined with the idea of impiety. It, it's a lack of reverence. It's neglect of, of duty towards God. It, it, it's, it's living wicked living in neglect of God's will, living apart from it, and our lives spring forth the rotten fruit of that attitude towards God. It's ungodly. But then he uses the word worldly lust, strong desires. And here he's speaking up the desires of the world that entangle a person, that separate a person from God. He says, look, and think about it. This morning I could say, hey, Let's get a whiteboard, and I want you to go through Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's try to identify ways that we see how the godly are to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. And you could give me a lot of different observations as we went through. You know, some of the, you know, we could just walk through real quick. You go to Titus chapter 2, and the older women are to do what? They're not to be irreverent. They're to be reverent. They're not to be slanderers. What would that be a definition or an example of? Ungodliness. They're not to be a slave to much wine. They're not to be drunkards controlled by wine. They're to teach what is good. They're, they're to be self-controlled, not following after their lust. You could go through and look at the opposites of each of the characteristics mentioned. But he not only tells them what they're to say no to, notice the positive instruction here. Verse 12 training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live how? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I, I was taught that the way you look at these last three positive terms are this teaches us how to relate to ourself, how to relate to others, and how to relate to God. The first one, how do we relate to ourselves? Self-control. How are we to relate to others? Being righteous, upright. How are we to relate to others with godly lives? We're to live godly in the present. 
self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. You remember that word sophron we talked about, self-controlled? It's the idea of one sound mind, sober mind, moderate. And it's used in verse 2 for the older men. It's used in verse 5 for the younger women. Verse, or actually for the older women and how they're to train. And in verse 6, it's used. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 6. This is how grace impacts us. Grace enables us through the living power of Christ to be self-controlled. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared to all men, and he is our teacher, and he is our instructor, and he works within us. And now we look at life differently. We look at life First of all, through the lens of the incarnation, because in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and he came for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he lived, and he taught us, and he died for us. And we look back to the first appearing, and it shapes the way we're to live, but we'll see that's not the only appearing we're to look to. But then he gives the phrase righteously, the way we interact with our fellow men. We are just, we are proper, we are right, honest. The way we live amongst other people. And then he uses the word godly, how we relate to God. We're devout, we walk in a holy way. And, and then he says, so you get the idea of, okay, what is, he, what is the, comp, how, how, do, how comprehensive is this instruction? Well, it teaches you what you're not to do, it teaches you how to react positively, so we're, what we're not to do, what we are to do, but then what we are to look to, and that's what we're moving towards. And he says, in the present age, now notice this, read the passage again in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Now, notice that phrase there at the end of verse 12, in the present age. In this classroom, you get the true understanding of what is coming in the future. You see, in the classroom of the world, think about that. In the classroom, in the schoolroom of grace, you have renewed minds to be able to hear God's truth. In the classroom of the world, you have a mindset of the age in which you live. You have a mindset that seeks to conform you to the principles of the world. But here it reminds us that this is not all that we live for. The present age is just that. It's the present age. There's more to come. In Matthew 12, 32, Jesus speaks about the age to come. In Matthew 13, 49, he speaks about the end of the age. In Matthew 24, verse 3, he speaks about the coming, his coming, his return that will make the end of the age. So go into verse 13, and now we see not only what we're not to do, what we are to do, but what we are to look to. In verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're trained in the classroom of grace to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly, righteously, and godly, all while keeping our eyes on something. Notice here, I remember, 
if, if you've ever, you know, when you play sports, you remember things you were taught. And, 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 I, and I had that, I told you about Coach Carpenter. And Coach Carpenter was, I played, I played for some guys, you know, we all can relate to coaches regardless of what you did and how you did it. But some coaches don't care if teams catch the ball. In college, you just had to be out there and, 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 and not let your guy pass you, not let him make a drive. And, and it wasn't, but my high school coach demanded that you do not let the guy catch. And so he would do drills. And we in practice, if, if the team that we were like one team, you know, you got the blues and the whites and the blues allowed the whites to catch the ball five times in an offensive set, we had to run. So what do we do when they were when they had the ball in a half court setting? He would say, "On the line, up the line. On the line, up the line." So you would like draw an imaginary line from the ball to the to, to your man, and you're on. You see where that line is, and you're on the line. But he wanted you up the line and with your hand on the line. Now he would then yell, "See ball, see man." See ball, see man. See ball, see man. And I've said that a million times to people because I got taught it. You can't look just at the man. You can't look just at the ball. You got to see both. Notice what Paul's doing here. He says there's two appearings. See the incarnation. See the second coming. This is how you live the Christian life. You live with two appearings constantly in mind. You live looking back at the first epiphany, but you never lose sight of the second epiphany. You live in full reality that not only Christ has come and your life is rooted in the substitutionary work of Jesus. Your identity is not in your religious abilities. Your identity is not doing religious ceremony. Your identity is that one took your place at the cross but you live out of that reality, not as an end game only. You live in light of the fact that the one who died for you is returning to rescue you from this present age. And that looking at the incarnation and that looking at the second coming purifies the way you live. He says, I remember uh, I told you I had to listen to John Stott for like 14 hours because I was behind in the class. And it was the longest 14 hours ever, but it became a wonderful, glorious situation because I was just immersed into this text. And he has a very strange voice and a very dry sense of humor. But I'll tell you, it was one of the most shaping classes I've had in my life. And I remember as a 23, 24-year-old kid, young man, <laughs> I remember sitting there in my house in Portland, and it was as if the Holy Spirit was making this alive to me. You see, we live not just in a moral code. We live not just as good church people. We live not just as ethical, moral, self-righteous people. We live changed by this grace. We live empowered by this grace. We live instructed by this grace. And the grace of God that works within has set our eyes on future grace because he will return. Amen? waiting for our blessed hope. And here is one of the greatest statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. I love this. It's appearing of grace at the incarnation, appearing of glory at the second coming, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the construction most Greek 
scholars believe that that's referring all in that statement to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great God and he is our great savior who gave himself for us. When we think about these passages, I want you to think, you know, all through the New Testament, we see reminders that he is coming back. Reminders of his coming. You could go to 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Timothy 4, 8, 2 Peter 3, 12 through 14. I love what 1 John 3, 3 says, and think about how it relates to this passage. John says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I, was, I had the chance last weekend when I was gone to be at a conference in Albuquerque, and I got to hear a guy by the name of Dr. Tom Schreiner, and he was talking in a question and answer, and people were talking about end times. And there's a lot of people that believe a lot of different things about the end. But one thing he said, because, you know, we can all agree whether it's these wars we're watching in the world right now, are there wars to come? Jesus is coming back. And when we see wars and rumors of wars, it reminds us that Christ one day will follow those rumors and those wars. And you know what? Paul says, look to the second coming. As you live, it will give you insight. You know, I think all the time about our, our younger Christians in the room. How do you live in a world that, how do you live amongst people that may profess something they don't possess? There's a lot of people that profess Christ that don't know him. How do you walk in that? You have to live. Remember, if, if you're a younger Christian in the room today, the instructor of grace lives within you. And the instructor of grace doesn't come visit you when you hit adulthood. He comes into you when he converts you at a young age. And he begins to teach you. He begins to teach you about what the gospel looks like. He begins to teach you about the second coming of, of his return. And he begins to show you how to live. And you look at your life. And if you go back to Titus chapter 2, that's how the people are to conduct themselves under this tutor, under this classroom. So the final observation in this classroom, we're brought in by grace, we're instructed by grace, but number three, we're transformed by grace. Look what he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He gave himself for us to redeem us, think about it. God's love is giving, it's sacrificial. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave himself for us to redeem us. You know, you can think about how even in Hebrews, the body thou hast prepared for me. Jesus, the father gave, Jesus gave up his body and his life. We're constantly seeing how the Godhead is giving and here he gave himself for us to redeem us. What does it mean, the word redeem? The simplest way I've heard it explained, he freed us, he ransomed us, he liberated us. He gave himself for us to liberate us, to free us from every lawless deed. Once we were in Adam, we were estranged from God, we were enemies of God, we were hostile to God, we suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, but 
we've experienced freedom through the blood of Christ. And now his spirit lives within us and he's redeemed us from every lawless deed. And then he goes on, lawlessness, you live, you live lawlessly. It's just like it sounds. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You know, this final, we're transformed by grace. He's not just saved us and given us a, the, you know, a, a assurance of heaven. He has not only purified, he's purified us. What does it mean to purify? It means to purify from the pollution and the guilt of sin. And he's made us a people for his own possession. You remember 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's purified us. And here is what I want you to see. There's so much we could just stop and pause and look at here, but notice this. Zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. It, it speaks of one who's eagerly desiring something. This is amazing. How does, this is what you got to ask yourself. How does God take people who were described like the one, the Cretans in Titus 1 verse 12, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How does God take people who are liars and evil beasts and give them a desire to be zealous in their good works? It's the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray you see that this morning. I, yeah, on, on, you know, when I'm at home and, uh, it's nice out. The boys love throwing, Will and Ben love throwing the football. And, and Ben yesterday, every time I was home, he, he was like, can we throw the football? 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 You get the idea, but I'm not exaggerating. The, can we throw the football? He had a desire to throw the football. That was a strong desire. And he, I told him, like, you're the best six-year-old catcher I've seen in a long time. Because I was chunking him 30 yards. He was pulling him in. And he had a desire, but think with me, what do you desire this morning? What do you desire? The only way that you will have a desire for the things of God is through the work of Christ. You can't achieve that through religion. You can't achieve that through ceremony. You can't achieve that through trying harder. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit within your heart to change you. But here's the good news, Christian. The good news is the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation, instructing us. And this instruction is multifaceted. And it involves the very instructor who now lives within us to enable us to follow his will. Zealous for good deeds. You see how it connects to the, to, the, to the overview of Titus 2? Older men act like this. Older women act like this. Younger women, younger men, bond slaves. Let me summarize why this is possible. The grace of God has appeared to all men. We'll start in verse 15 next time. But this morning... Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? 
What a tragedy. If you were around the things of God, yet didn't know the grace of God. What a tragedy if you went to church hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, but you never knew him and you never experienced this precious classroom of his saving work. This morning, I read to you earlier about the giving of the Father. It's a passage that you hear all the time, but what a wonderful truth. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you believed in him? Have you trusted him? We read in the book of Hebrews, don't play games with yourself. The book of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Would you stand with me? Lord, as we go to this time of response, I pray that we would be changed by these truths, that we've been brought in by your grace. We've been instructed by your grace. We've been transformed by your grace. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would respond obediently according to your word. I want to read to you this morning some lyrics. I was listening to a song lately, an old hymn written by Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? One of the verses that just grabbed my heart. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. As Mike plays, Charlie's going to be to my right and your left. God's working on your heart, and you need to talk to somebody this morning about receiving Christ and trusting in him.